This is Letter to the Americans Week 5, which I think will be Episode 4. Just that's a little confusing, sorry about that. But this is Letter to the Americans Week 5, featuring a reading from The Emergence of Sin, the Cosmic Tyrant, by Matthew Croisman. The Emergence of the Cosmic Power, Sin By Romans chapter 5, verse 21, the personhood and agency of hamartia, which is the Greek word for sin, whether we understand that literally or figuratively, is quite plain. In 521, sin, with a capital S, has achieved the position it will hold for most of the next two chapters. Sin is a slave master, exercising dominion over those under its power. The main task of this chapter is to describe this dominion, for sin as a cosmic power is most clearly seen in its exercise of agency in the world. But so far as it is possible, I begin by making a couple of simple observations about the origin of this power. It seems to burst onto the scene, but if we dig a bit, we find that we actually have two stories of the origins of sin. Chapter 1, verses 18-32, through 32, and the classic pericope, chapter 5, verses 12-17. through 17. In both cases, we see that the origin of sin is coincident with the sinful activity of human beings. On these grounds, I suggest that the cosmic power, sin, emerges from a supervenience base of human sins, meaning that human sins are the necessary conditions for the cosmic power, sin, to emerge. Romans' story regarding sin begins in Paul's description of the decline of the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1, beginning with the invention of idolatry. As Stanley Stowers has demonstrated, Such a decline narrative, including the invention of iconic worship, while certainly found in Jewish literature such as the Book of Wisdom and the Sibylline Oracles, is a broad Greco-Roman commonplace. Stowers cites multiple ancient philosophers to support this claim, but Seneca is his most important source. In it, Seneca praises the original Bucola human condition and recounts the onset of moral decline. In the beginning, true knowledge of the gods flows naturally from wisdom. It is wisdom who discloses to us what the gods are and of what sort they are. Such worship needs no icon and, indeed, no temple. Regarding this natural revelation of the gods in their worship, Seneca writes, Such are wisdom's rites of initiation, by means of which is unlocked, not a village shrine, but the vast temple of all the gods, the universe itself, whose true apparitions and true aspects she offers to the gaze of our minds. For Seneca, as for Paul, the cosmos declares the true nature of divinity. Worship of images is a step away from this original ideal. Seneca is not alone. The Cynic author, Pseudo-Heraclitus, writes what sounds like typical Jewish invective, so much so that he has occasionally been misidentified as a Jewish author, but he is clearly expressing a Greco-Roman philosophical commonplace. You stupid men, teach us first what God is, so that you may be trusted when you speak of committing impiety. Also, where is God? Is he shut up in temples? You ignorant men, don't you know that God is not wrought by hands, and has not from the beginning had a pedestal, and does not have a single enclosure? Rather, the whole world is his temple. The argument is, of course, quite close to Paul's. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Romans 1, verses 20 and 23. Whether an author is a Jew like Paul, a Stoic like Seneca, or a Cynic like Pseudo-Heraclitus, the decline of humanity involves the invention of idol worship. 
For Paul, however, the onset of idolatry was not merely one step in a long chain of moral decline. It was the sin of the Gentiles, the fountainhead of their decline, and to all manner of debauchery, which climaxes in verses 29-32. While the appearance of iconic worship does not appear in Seneca's account of the decline of human beings, and we can cite other ancient Greco-Roman philosophical invective against idolatry, the onset of idolatry does not seem to have had the same weight for these philosophers. Rather, if there is an original sin for the philosophers, it is desire and its cognates. As Seneca describes, the original fellowship between humans and divinity, mediated by wisdom, remained unspoiled for a long time, until desire tore the community asunder and became the cause of poverty, even in the case of those whom she herself had most enriched. This onset of avaricious vice first brought about the need for law. Originally, wisdom had governed through benevolent dictatorship, but when one vice stole in and kingdoms were transformed into tyrannies, a need arose for laws, and these very laws were in turn framed by the wise. Despite the framing work of the wise, according to Seneca, the laws could not stem the general development of wickedness. Instead, Seneca, like Paul in Romans 3.20, describes law as functioning merely to deepen human culpability. Of the original humans, Seneca writes, It was by reason of their ignorance of things that the men of those days were innocent, and it makes a great deal of difference whether one wills not to sin or has not the knowledge to sin. Stowers concludes, in spite of the massive amounts of ink that had been spilled on asking how, in Romans 5, Adam's sin was causative of human sinfulness, Paul follows extant Jewish sources in showing no interest in that question. Rather, his interest is in epochs in the history of sin and salvation. Paul's mention of sin and death, beginning with Adam and then sin being in the world before the law, the period from Adam to Moses, chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, and then on to his big point about the universality of Adam and Christ, clearly envisages sin as having the kind of history seen in Jewish and other forms of primitism. Sin began, it spread, it was not reckoned in the period before the law. Adam sinned in one way, later people in another, and law came in to make the trespass greater. This is not a view of sin from the perspective of a moment in the pre-mundane heavenly realm or in the garden that changed human nature. Indeed, Stowers does well in describing the history of sin in Romans and provides ample evidence to suggest that this story was intelligible, intelligible to Paul's Gentile addressees. The story Paul is telling is a story of moral decline. Sinning, idolatry, and all the wickedness that flows from it comes first, and, as we will see throughout Romans, there is never a sense that hamartia, even understood in personal terms, is ever fully separated from this basic sense of individual misdeed. Yet there is a dynamic of this early decline narrative, that shows the integration of this narrative with Paul's later vivid mythological language regarding sin. Following the Gentiles' initial sin of idolatry, Paul says that God hands them over to the desires of their hearts in verse, verse, chapter 1, verse 24, to dishonorable passions in verse 26, and to a, deba- a debased mind in verse 28. Paradidome here retains the technical sense of handing one over to a jailer. The Gentiles find themselves imprisoned to a deformed moral psychology. These sequential imprisonments anticipate the language of enslavement and domination at the hands of sin, which comes to the fore later in the letter. This deformed moral psychology is a mechanism of sin's dominion. This account of a chain of psychological imprisonments, then, is the story of the emergence of the dominion of sin, experienced at the psychological level. From an emergent point of view, however, the emergence of this agency is coincident with the emergence of an entity. In the convoluted collective moral psychology of those who function as the supervenience base for the emergent emergent cosmic tyrant sin, we have the establishment of the sorts of processes of recursive self-maintenance that ground sin's being as a self. 
Given human cognition's social basis, one person's desires and passions set the boundary conditions for the desires and passions of another. The residue of past transgressions become the built environment in which future transgressions flourish as natural. There is no architect. The buildings build themselves. Of course, Paul is quite aware that intentional top-down social artifice, in this case law, can be imposed, but his contention is that this imposition is not so external as to be able to avoid ser serving to solidify and embolden sin. The natural social cognitive processes that facilitate the spread of desire and degrading passions themselves become the con constitutive processes that give rise to the single debased mind, the collective epistemic subject that has emerged. Reference to chapter 1, verse 28. Those who participate in this subject's constituent thought styles, the dank collective or group thought of sin, are given over to thinking within the boundary conditions established by its cognition. In such a calamitous psychological state, doing that which ought not be done is part and parcel of the sentence. At the mythological level, we would describe it this way. The dominion of sin is established through the rebellion of human beings, the natural consequences of which are permitted by God. This is a picture of the power, sin, emerging from the sinful rebellion of human beings. This rebellion provides the base on which the cosmic power, sin, supervenes. Human beings then ironically experience the real dominion of this creation of their own hands. There is no conflict between Paul's story of decline and his later mythological language. We are the authors of our own tragedy, makers of a slave master that hold us in bondage. The turn to idolatry is, in a certain sense, ironically successful. The story of the advent of idolatry is the story of the creation of a real superhuman power that truly does exercise dominion over its human subjects, as Beverly Gaventa describes it. Some scholars posit a tension between what Paul affirms in this passage about human refusal to acknowledge God and later sections of the letter that speak of sin as a power. The beginning point of this grand depiction of sin is certainly humanity's willful choice to deny God, even to create its own gods. Paul's depiction of humankind opens with an action taken by humanity itself rather than by another power. With the claim that God delivered up humanity to impurity, passion, and debased mind, however, there may be at least a hint of some larger conflict. And as yet unnamed, someone or something challenges God for humanity. That is not to overlook the initial action. Humanity's refusal of God's lordship meant that God conceded humanity for a time to the lordship of another. Already in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, long before the Adam story is introduced, all, both Jews and Greeks, are described as being under sin. Paul previously used this phrase in Galatians 3.22 and uses it again in Romans 7.14. This is language of dominion. Whatever advantage Jews have over Gentiles in having the oracles of God, Romans 3.2, there is universal equality in this fact. All humanity lives under the dominion of sin. The scriptural Cantonen, chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, describes the universality of this reign and its consequences. While it would be hard to build a Pauline conception of the dominion of sin on the strength of this phrase alone, it is worth noting that from early on, in the midst of the extended decline narrative, Paul is already quite happy to use language that describes sin as a dominator, a slave master to, hum to whom human beings are subject. Paul is able to do this without in any sense detracting from the story of moral decline. The onset of sin's dominion and the increase of sin, of transgression and of moral decay, are one and the same thing, and Paul can adopt at least these two different discourses, moral decline or personal enslaving power, as they suit his rhetorical needs. We turn now to the classic pericope, Romans 5, 12-21. To a large extent, the puzzle about the origins of ha hamartia lies in 5, 12. 
Therefore, just as through one man sin came into the world, and through sin came death, and so death spread to all people, because all sinned. Sin entering is just the first of a long string of actions that sin performs. From here, sin increases, 520, exercises dominion, 521, 612, and 614, produces desire in 7.8, revives in 7.9, and dwells in the bodies of sinners, 7.17 and 20. In other words, Romans 5.12 constitutes the second creation account of sin in Romans, the creation of the cosmic tyrant, sin. If the early account of the origins of sin focused largely on the level of moral psychology, here the focus is on the mythological level. The development of sin is a mythological power that exercises dominion over the creation. For many Christian interpreters since Augustine, this passage serves as the textual hook for an expansive doctrine of original sin, beginning with the sin of the first man, Adam, and constituting a fundamental change in anthropology, meaning the nature of human, human beings. More recently, scholars have argued that 512 simply indicates a spread of sin, that is, of sinful behavior, of the type that we saw in the moral decline narrative. Kaseman points to Second Baruch as indicating that this tension could be tolerated within ancient Judaism. For although Adam sinned first and has brought death upon all who were not in his own time, yet each of them who descended from him has prepared for himself the coming torment. Adam is, therefore, not the cause except for himself, but each of us has become our own Adam. Adam brought death upon all, and yet each of us becomes our own Adam. All this is made clear in Romans chapter 6. As plain as Paul's language is about sin's dominion, he is equally clear about human cooperation. Sin's dominion involves our participation. So, in verse 12, Paul can command the addressees, Do not let sin reign. Despite sin's reign, there is an exercise of agency involved. In verse 16, we have, Do you not know that to whomever you yield yourselves in obedience as slaves, you are slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Enslavement to sin is a result of an act of presenting oneself as a slave, yielding, as Jewett suggests. One lives under a master of one's own selection, or, to take the emergentist language one step further, of one's own creation. Paul's plea to the addressees is, yield your members to righteousness and become a slave of obedience. In summary, the decline of human beings into sin, in archetypal Adam, each person's imitation of that archetypal sin, and in the history of the nations in Romans 1, 18-32, is coincidental with their being handed over to sin and then living under its dominion. On an emergent reading, this is precisely where the power, sin, is coming to be, where the transition from sinning to sin, with a capital S, is happening. At the individual level, each is subjected to desires and to dishonorable passions. Their very psychology is corrupt. At the social level, this leads to a subjection to a collective debased mind, Sin supervenes on these properties and entities at the individual and social levels. Read in an emergent framework, Romans 1, 18-32 appears as a rather straightforward account of sin's self-generation. The account of moral decline is an account of the generation of ever more convoluted processes of self-maintenance and regulation of lower-level processes, in this case psychological and social, that give rise to the emergence of a self at a higher level of organization, in this case mythological. This is a bottom-up description of sin. It is not evidence, as Stowers claims, that there is no understanding of sin as a power in Romans. Rather, it is evidence that the power, sin, emerges from a complex system of human transgression, of human moral psychology, run amok. However, much sin 
However much sin might function as a cosmic tyrant, in Romans, sin's power develops with the cooperation of its subjects. Romans is everywhere insisting, as did Boltman, that sin came into the world by sinning. In emergent terms, sin arises from a supervenience base of human transgressions, of human sinning. Sin, as a cosmic power, emerges from the exercise of individual human agencies, paradigmatically Adams, but subsequently the contingent historical and destructive behavior of all people. Walter Wink's summary of the emergence of powers serves quite well as a summary of the emergence of sin, which neither Wink nor I take to be a member of Paul's category, dunamis, or powers. It is far from the case, then, that human beings create their gods. The spirits of things emerge with the things themselves and are only subsequently divined as their inner essence. The gods, spirits, and demons are not mere personifications or hypostatizations. That is the language of reductionism. It means that these entities are not regarded as real, but only as poetic fictions or shorthand for speaking about realities the historian knows how to describe more precisely with his analytical tools. Personification means illusion. The powers we are speaking about, on the contrary, are real. To be sure, we do establish new structures and modify old ones. Insofar as we share in the creative process and bring new consciousness to it, we help create the spirituality of things. There is a reciprocity, so we could argue that it is true to say that the gods create us to say that it is as true to say that the gods create us as to say that we create the gods. Wink's language vividly evokes the language of idolatry with which Paul begins his invective. The original instinct to create new gods in the images of human beings or animals is, as we have noted, ironically successful. A new divinity does come into being and exercises a dominion that reflects the essential difference between it and the true God. It is mortal as opposed to the immortality of God, 123, and so it reigns in death rather than in life, 514. Jesus' obedience in 519 reverses this dire situation, 517. Skipping many, many pages to the end of the book, page 187. The tyrant sin only exists to the extent to which sinful humanity underwrites its being by participating in the complex systems on which the tyrant supervenes. So, while God is invested in the integrity of God's creation, sin has no investment in the creation, and certainly no investment in the individual identity of each human creation. Human persons are, for sin, mere instruments, for sin is invested only in the unfolding of the world that gives rise to its being, not at all in the being of the creation or the identities of creatures as such. God adopts a fundamentally different posture toward the human creature. To speak, then, of the sovereignty of God in the life of free women and men is equivalent to saying that they have taken the true position that corresponds to them as human beings on the earth. Their position is not as beings inferior to God, but simply as God's creatures summoned to live worthily, to give life to all, to defend it, and to enjoy it in communion with others. The sovereignty of God coincides with the realization of the human being. The sovereignty of the idol coincides with dehumanization. Sin's dominion yields dehumanization. God's dominion yields realization of the human subject. How the author above refrains from citing Romans 5.17, I do not know. What she describes is nothing other than the restoration of Adamic dominion to redeemed humanity. Indeed, as I argued in chapter 5, reigning in life is one of the crucial goods that participation in Christ's body delivers that the body of sin is unable to deliver. Confronting Youth Violence, A Personal Story and Modest Ecumenical Hope 
New Haven, Connecticut has been my home now for the for more than 15 years. For nearly a decade, I have had the privilege of first planting and now pastoring, along with my wife and many others, a fledgling church community here in the heart of the city. Like many post-industrial cities across the United States, New Haven struggles with its fair share of typically urban problems. Chief among them, perhaps, has been the city's perennial struggle with youth violence. When the weather gets warm, the streets get hot, with young people shooting and sometimes killing each other. Each slaying seems to contribute to several more committed in response and retaliation. It is a reality that puts the issue of youth violence at the top of any pastor's list of priorities. Yet I have noticed something interesting about the ways leaders from different theological backgrounds respond to the same crisis. Ask an evangelical pastor what ought to be done, and you will hear about the need to impact the individual lives of these young people. Change one heart at a time, save one soul at a time, and eventually the violence will subside. But ask a liberal pastor, mainline Protestant or Catholic, the same question, and the answer is very different. Focusing on the individual means ignoring a whole host of systemic factors that are the real culprits. If you want to stem the tide of youth violence in the city, you need to address the cycles of poverty and the unjust, racist systems in which these youths are trapped. Typically, a Pentecostal pastor has yet a third solution. Show me where the stronghold of the spirit of violence is in this community. Let's go there. Let's cast it out. Then there will be peace on the streets of the city. Each of these pastors struggles with how to respond to a real material problem in the city. By now, the schema I have used to describe their range of responses is familiar. More or less, I think we can see these various Christian theological traditions rendering an account of youth violence at only one of the following levels. Individual, my stereotyped evangelical. Social, my stereotyped liberal. Or mythological, my stereotyped Pentecostal. Granted, these examples are straw men. Many pastors are self-aware enough of their own location within the diversity of global Christianity to understand that the sort of knee-jerk biases I have described do not capture the full picture of sin's operation in the world, nor, therefore, of a robust Christian response. There are ecumenical instincts to bridge these divides, but even these instincts operate from a basic understanding that these differences exist, at least in terms of points of emphasis and priorities. Beyond a sort of generous intellectual theological humility, my hunch is that even these more self-aware ecumenical pastors would have a hard time articulating precisely how each of these traditional Christian interventions against sin, in terms of personal discipleship, social action, and deliverance ministry, could possibly be effective all at once. How would one intervention relate to another? How might social action accomplish the overthrow of a demonic power? How might demonic deliverance, or social action for that matter, materially alter the psychology of the individual disciple? Doubtless, there is much that remains to be said, but my sense is that an emergent account of sin offers a framework within which well-theorized answers to these sorts of questions might be addressed. Within such a framework, the state of the individual exists in a network of social relations that themselves function as the quite material body of the spiritual entities that exercise spiritual power over social structures, and through them, the individuals within them. So, causation between various Christian interventions against sin could be theorized along the lines of upward and downward causation. Personal discipleship would have upward causation effects on the social structures in which the individual is embedded, and indeed on the mythological entities that emerge from these social structures. Effective social action would have upward causation effects on the mythological entities that emerge from the social structures reformed by such action, and also downward causation effects on the personal entities embedded within the social structures addressed. 
deliverance ministry would have downward causation effect on the social structures in which the mythological entities addressed supervene, and further, on the individuals within the social structures, who constitute the social bodies of these emergent entities. In this sense, emergentism might become a framework within which to theorize the relationships between mutually reinforcing practices of resistance against sin, practices which, is, which have long coexisted within the church. Only this sort of multi-level resistance is appropriate to sin's well-integrated, multi-level dominion. It is the integrated practice of a community awaiting the fulfillment of the promise that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Romans 16, 20.